This week, is dementia on the decline? And treating anemia in chronic kidney disease. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by Fahad Razak, who is an internist at the University of Toronto, also in Canada. What? What did I say? Did I say Toronto? <clears throat> University of Toronto? University of Toronto. I was on autopilot for that last part. I tuned out after I said your name. That's right. You're proud to be here, clearly. <laughs> so, well, the question is, are you proud to be here? I'm always here. Enough of the banter. Let's get going. Okay, so Fahad, we're going to talk today about two interesting topics. Why don't we dive right in? Tell me about dementia and its prevalence and whether dementia is declining. All right. Thanks, Amal. So the article I'm going to talk about looked at dementia rates over the last four decades using the Framingham Heart Study in the United States. And the major finding is that there's been a 20% decline in dementia from 1970 to the 2010s. And that represents an absolute decline of 1.6 episodes per 100 people. Okay. So that actually sounds a little bit counterintuitive to, I think, the prevailing narrative. Certainly, if you'd have asked me sort of blindly what I thought was happening with dementia rates, I would have said they were increasing. So tell me what we knew about rates of dementia before this study uh, and then why this study was conducted. Right. So there has been a lot of worry about a potentially catastrophic rise in dementia globally. We have an aging population. There's been a rise of cardiovascular risk factors. And we do know from pretty good data that dementia is the leading cause of dependence and disability in the elderly globally. What we don't know, though, is before this study, actually what the rates of dementia were. And the reason why that's a little bit harder to ascertain is that the prior studies that have looked at dementia rates have used reported health-coded data, often from things like administrative databases. And you can imagine that that is problematic because a lot of dementia probably slips under the radar. Yeah, poorly captured in exactly. administrative data. So this study is really important because, as everyone knows, the, fra the famous Framingham cohort has been studied and really well characterized over a long period of time. We know a lot about Framingham because of cardiovascular disease, but actually it's been a remarkable data set for a whole host of diseases. And one of those is dementia, where capturing dementia events has been done remarkably well in Framingham. For those of us who are not familiar with the uh, Framingham cohort, can you tell me a little bit about what patients are enrolled in this? And is this a representative sample population? of like? Can we generalize this to the general population? Uh, yeah, so the, the Framingham cohort, famous in medicine because, because of the Framingham risk score, it's a small town in Massachusetts, uh, predominantly white, higher education, higher income level than the United States in general. Um, it is the data set that's been used to generate a lot of what we know about cardiovascular risk factors. Definitely, there's concerns about representativeness. So does it have enough data to comment on East Asians, South Asians, African Americans? No, it does not. Immigrants. Immigrants. Yeah. And, you know, so it is a very homogeneous population. Right. Um, it is, unfortunately, the best data we have because of this problem of reliably capturing dementia events. Obviously, it's been an important data set for cardiovascular disease in general. And so how did they capture dementia? So these authors used the Framingham offspring study. So the original Framingham study started in the 1940s and 50s. 
There was then an offspring cohort that was the children of the original study. That started in the 1970s, and there was just over 5,000 offspring in this Framingham offspring cohort. And they screened for dementia using an MMSC, a mini mental status exam. And then they had further case identification for people who were positive on the screen with a detailed neuropsychological uh, battery and testing, and then further additional review by a dementia panel to confirm cases. And the dementia panel was a neurologist and a psychologist. So they went through pretty detailed steps. So, I mean, that meets face validity at the very least. Exactly, exactly. And then they used DSM criteria for both Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. And so they not only do they know dementia rates, they know types of dementia. Okay, that's, I mean, that's as high quality evidence as we're probably going to get. So tell me, uh, what was their... Uh, exact hypothesis for this study? So as, as you mentioned in the beginning, people have been worried about potentially a, a rapid rise in dementia rates. And so they went in saying, well, what does the data show? And what they found is that, first of all, age of incidence. So age of incidence, again, very hard to capture from administrative data. But here with this carefully captured and monitored population, they found that the age of incidence of dementia increased from, 80, from age 80 in 1970s to age 85 in the 2010s. So a five-year rise in the age of incidence. So that's very important. Yeah, I'm struck by a couple of things with that. I don't know if I'm allowed to jump in here. Am I interrupting your flow? No, not at all. So um, the first thing is, how, are, were they doing these screening exams annually with the mini mental status examination? So the, the mini mental was done every two years as part of the other assessments that were done on the Framingham cohort. The detailed neurocognitive battery was done on average every five to six years. So they had regular follow-up. And if we're thinking about dementia as a slow incident event, um, this is probably pretty reasonable for capturing it. So you're probably capturing within at least two years, I guess. Exactly. And so then my question is, doesn't that seem a little bit old to you? Like the 80 as the incident age of onset just at baseline? That strikes me as old. It does seem a little bit old. So we're not talking about any form of cognitive decline. We're talking about that actual formal DSM criteria dementia. Right. So probably, fairly severe. Yeah, fairly severe, a higher bar that you have to reach in order to actually get that diagnosis by DSM criteria. Um, in a clinical practice, we would probably say this patient already has signs of dementia, but to meet that threshold. Sure, yeah. So differentiating from cognitive impairment. Okay, so why don't you go on and tell me what else did they find? So the first major finding was that there was a five-year increase at the age of onset. The second was what I mentioned in the summary, which is that overall rates of dementia decreased by 20% during those four decades. And the most rapid decline occurred in vascular dementia compared to Alzheimer's dementia. Um, third, there was, some, there was some suggestion in the analysis that there was an interaction between educational status and the decline. So they did a further stratified analysis. They looked at people with greater than high school education versus those with less than high school education. And what seemed to, uh, what the data seemed to show was that really the decline occurred in those pe with people, in people with high school education or, or greater. Okay. Uh, and any other major findings that you want to tell us about? I mean, that those things all sort of track to basically tell us that this population is overall healthier at, at older ages in life. Does that, that sound right? Uh, that the people with higher education? No, like generally the population. Gen yeah, that's right. And so the question is why? So why is this decline happening? One of the other interesting findings that they had was that the likelihood of having dementia after a major cardiovascular event, for example, after a stroke, after an episode of heart failure, declined significantly 
in the 2010s versus in the 1970s. So in other words, after having a stroke in the 1970s, your chance of having dementia went up ninefold. In the 2010s, your chance of having dementia only went up twofold. So it has a suggestion that potentially the treatment of these cardiovascular events had improved to the point that the risk of dementia had gone down substantially later on. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe we're diagnosing strokes that are more minor now because we have better imaging and better testing. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. and not discussed here. What they have is the diagnosis of stroke, but not the severity. So great point. The, The thing that you would kind of wonder about is, is this control of risk factors? So could part of this be explained by increasing statin use, better blood pressure control, um, better control of diabetes in those who are diagnosed. In this analysis, maybe it's a sample size issue, they couldn't show that. So all they could show is that there was a reduction in the uh, likelihood of dementia after a major cardiovascular event. Okay, perfect. So Fahad, what is your takeaway from this? Like what jumps out at you and what are your major conclusions? So I think the exciting finding here is that this is the best data set we have to look at dementia as it occurs. There's a suggestion that there's been a reduction in rates of dementia over the last four decades. That's very important. That's very encouraging. Second, there's a suggestion that it may be related to improved medical treatment. Again, very encouraging. The uh, part about the the part about the results that I think is less encouraging is that it seems to be concentrated among higher educated people. So uh, for a lot of the world, especially outside of high-income countries, what will happen with dementia rates? Who knows? A lot of the world actually isn't well-educated. Control of risk factors isn't as good as it is in high-income countries. And then treatment after a major event is not nearly as good as it is here. So this tsunami of dementia that people worry about, it very well could still occur. Perhaps we're somewhat protected here in high-income countries, but who knows what will happen in Asia, in Africa, and South America. Yeah, so I think this reminds me of a couple of things. One is that we had a a discussion a couple of episodes ago where we focused on dementia and we talked about uh, the costs of care for patients with dementia and found that, you know, there was a really high burden in the cost of care and that that burden was related with existing socioeconomic disparities. So, again, what we're seeing here with higher incidences of dementia in less educated people may be tracking other socioeconomic indicators. So the possibility of dementia worsening existing inequalities, I think, is an important signal that we're seeing over several studies here. Exactly. Absolutely. And then the last uh, thought I have is that while dementia rates may go down, it's certainly possible that the number of people with dementia is still going to increase substantially as we deal with the demographic shifts of more aging populations. Uh, And so, you know, the system level effects of needing to care for more people just by sheer numbers may still be really an important factor. Yep. Okay. Thanks a lot, Fahad. Why don't we change gears and talk about anemia and chronic kidney disease? Sounds great, Amal. So I want to talk about a systematic review and meta-analysis published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Collister and colleagues looking at erythropoietin stimulating agents and their use in chronic kidney disease, and specifically their effect on health-related quality of life. So the major takeaway point from this study is that erythropoietin-stimulating agents do not improve health-related quality of life in patients with chronic kidney disease. Okay, so is this a surprising finding? 
Yeah, it kind of is actually. So the existing guidelines for the treatment of anemia and chronic kidney disease include erythropoietin-stimulating agents as one of the important treatment modalities. Chronic kidney disease, as you know, is very common and in fact increasing in prevalence. And also anemia in chronic kidney disease is extremely common. People often have iron deficiency, but they also often have less production of erythropoietin by their kidneys. And so treatment with erythropoietin-stimulating agents um, is thought to be beneficial. And so this has been, you know, the subject of much study over the last number of years. So beneficial in what sense? What does it actually benefit? Right. So there have been uh, quite a number of studies examining erythropoietin-stimulating agents, um, or I'm just going to call them EPO-stimulating agents from now on. So the main single benefit has been that EPO-stimulating agents reduce the need for blood transfusions. And then Many times now, EPO-stimulating agents have been compared at a higher target versus a lower target of hemoglobin, and treating to a higher hemoglobin target has not shown to improve mortality or cardiac outcomes, and in fact, treating to a higher target increases the risk of stroke, hypertension, and thrombosis. So one of the main reasons why people would suggest treating with EPO-stimulating agents has actually been purported benefits in quality of life. Okay. So when you say that it improves quality of life, specifically, what do patients say improves? Well, so there's questions about whether it could improve physical function, energy levels, exercise tolerance, uh, these kinds of things. Okay. And so uh, the current guidelines basically recommend targeting a hemoglobin level of uh, 100 to 110, uh, or if you use crazy American units, 10 to 11. Um, And so... Uh, these authors conducted a systematic review to ask the question about whether or not the use of EPO-stimulating agents in adults with chronic kidney disease is associated with improvements specifically in health-related quality of life. Okay. So what did they find? Yeah. So they included studies um, of patients with chronic kidney disease and anemia that reported health-related quality of life measures, obviously. Only prospective randomized trials were included in this analysis. Uh, And they found that most of the studies they included used the short form 36 as a measure of health-related quality of life. Uh, And several of the studies also used the kidney disease questionnaire, which is a questionnaire specific to uh, uh, kidney patients, whereas the short form 36 is probably one of the most widely used sort of general health status questionnaires. Okay. Um, So do you want to tell our listeners a bit more about these questionnaires? What do they capture? Yeah. So the short form 36 has 36 questions in eight domains. And those domains include things like physical function, general health, vitality, emotion, social uh, function, mental health. So a a variety of domains. Um, And the kidney disease questionnaire includes several other domains like fatigue, that are associated specifically with kidney disease. Okay, great. So what did they find? So they found 17 studies that included about just over 10,000 patients. And I'll tell you just a little bit about these studies. So 12 of these studies were in non-dialysis patients, and uh, five were exclusively sort of in including dialysis patients. Five of the studies were placebo-controlled, whereas... The other 12 studies were comparing two treatment strategies with um, EPO-stimulating agents. Interestingly, only four of the studies could 
definitively have been said to have low risk of bias and the rest it was either indeterminate or moderate or higher risks of having uh, biased results. And the follow-up was variable, ranging from eight months to 36 months. And the hemoglobin targets in these studies were variable as well. So uh, ranging from a low group where the hemoglobin levels were between 74 and 120, so a huge range, and in the high group between 102 and 136. So again, huge and overlapping targets. I have to say, just from that description, it seems so hard to believe that you could get a reasonable meta-analytic result from this data. Yeah, so that's a really uh, important question. And in fact, there have been several other studies in this area that have actually you know, synthesized and, and searched and found this number of studies and then chosen not to meta-analyze the data, saying that there's too much heterogeneity. Mm -hmm. These authors argue that the differences between these groups are uh, perhaps important, but they reflect a difference in treatment strategy in terms of targeting a low uh, hemoglobin level versus a higher hemoglobin level. And that's an important clinical question. And so they felt that it was a, an important enough clinical question and an important enough clinical difference in the strategies and approaches taken between the two groups in all these studies that they could reasonably compare them. I'll leave it to you to sort of decide, you know, how much you think that allows you to interpret these results. Okay. So major finding. So the major finding, like I said initially, is that there's no significant differences. So between uh, the group that was randomized to a lower hemoglobin target versus those that were randomized to a higher hemoglobin target, there were no significances in any domain of the SF36 or in the kidney disease questionnaire. When they looked at specific subgroups, certainly the dialysis group, those differences were really not seen. When they looked at the non-dialysis group, they saw some trends towards improvement in physical function, but nothing that was statistically significant. So overall, certainly there's no strong evidence. Like, I think it's very fair to say there is no strong evidence to support uh, an improvement in quality of life using EPO-stimulating agents. And you could argue that the balance of evidence suggests that there's no meaningful improvement in quality of life when you with the use of these, these drugs. So just one methodologic question about how these trials are done. You said that one of the main indications or um, uh, one of the most apparent benefits of EPO-stimulating agents is that it reduces the need for transfusions. Right. So when they do these trials and you have a placebo group, is uh, the placebo group able to get a transfusion? Yes. So they can get transfusions and it's counted as an event. You know, I mean, I haven't read the protocols of each of these studies, but right. um, from the overview that I read here, certainly receiving a transfusion is um, one of the outcomes, right, in these studies. So you would be eligible. Now, I'm not sure if that then censored you from the trial or whether... Yeah, because I think the, yeah. you know, not to get too much into the weeds, but if your placebo group could get transfusions, then why would you believe necessarily that quality of life would be different between the two groups? Because if you think that the mechanism by which people are getting poor quality of life is related to low hemoglobin and yet you can get transfused in the placebo group, then you probably wouldn't see a difference. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the, I'll come back to the point, which is that only five of the 12 studies were placebo controlled, and the majority of the studies were, in fact, uh, from uh, comparing two different EPO-stimulating agent strategies. Right. Um, so, and I think when they when they separated and looked specifically at the placebo control trials and at the EPO-stimulating agent studies separately as a subgroup analysis, there was also no difference. Okay. So, you know, I think this raises the really important, a couple of really important questions in my mind. So I totally agree with you that 
one very heterogeneous group of studies and two, you know, the risk of bias potentially high in a lot of these studies. Right. The main questions that come to my mind are, first of all, if quality of life benefits are one of the main reasons to be on these drugs, it seems to me that there's not really a super compelling reason to be on these medications other than preventing transfusions, which is an important outcome. Don't get me wrong. And the second thing that, that comes to my mind is none of these studies, to my knowledge, really tested like a very sparing uh, uh, strategy, like a hemoglobin target of 70 versus 100, right. or relatively few of them have done that. And you would think that with the way we're moving in terms of you know hemoglobin levels, certainly with transfusion targets, that that would be an obvious uh, uh, trial to be done. Absolutely. Particularly because these are you know new and ex- expensive medications. Yeah. The last point I'll make is that there are many, many ongoing studies in this area, and a lot of them using new biologic type agents um, to try to pr- to address the anemia question in different ways. And those may not have uh, some of the negative effects of the EPO stimulating agents. So it'll be interesting to watch this space and see what happens. Hopefully, many of those studies, and hopefully one of the things that comes out of this work is suggest that they're capturing health-related quality of life in a rigorous way. Okay, thanks, Amal. Should we move on to good stuff? Let's move on to good stuff. So why don't you kick, kick us off, Fahad? Tell me what from the world of medicine caught your eye this week. Uh, I'm going to talk about an article in the New York Times. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. Um, so it's an article about IBM's health analytics unit, uh, which is called, which is also called their Watson Health Unit. Uh, Watson is an artificial intelligence decision-making system. Who won Jeopardy? Who won Jeopardy five years ago in a fascinating, uh, the first time that a computer has achieved the Paris Hilton or overcome the Paris Hilton problem. Do you know what the Paris Hilton problem is? I could think of several Paris Hilton problems, <laughs> but they'll probably get me censored for so, this podcast. So, so the Paris Hilton problem is if you type in Paris Hilton on Google, Google doesn't know if you want to find a Hilton in Paris or if you're looking for Amal's, fav- Amal's favorite celebrity starlet, Paris Hilton. Um, and what is really challenging in the artificial intelligence world is to uh, create programs and algorithms for software to actually understand context. So knowing when things are relevant. And the reason that Jeopardy was this huge achievement was Jeopardy questions are often tongue-in-cheek, very um, uh, creatively worded. And to get a computer program to be able to understand what's being asked and to beat a human being, in that case, the famous Ken Jennings, that was a remarkable achievement. And the first thing that IBM uh, did after the, the victory of Watson over Ken Jennings was to roll out Watson Health Analytics. So they said, we're going to apply this artificial intelligence technology to medical decision-making, specifically physician aid in decision-making. So really interesting and exciting. And after all of the flurry of media coverage five years ago, I kind of lost track of what had happened to Watson until I read this article. And it turns out that over the last few years, IBM has invested remarkably $4 billion into Watson in order to achieve this goal of um, artificial intelligence, health decision-making. Um, they now have data on 300 million people. Um, and the latest purchase, which was what was being covered in the New York Times, was for $2.6 billion, they just purchased another health company called Truven Health Analytics. Uh, so it's going to be exciting to see what happens. I mean, I think that potentially in the not-too-distant future, we're going to be looking at the first broad rollout of this kind of health, la- health analytic decision-making aid in our practice. It'll be interesting to see what happens. 
Did they say what they're working on? So it's really about taking things like risk factors and other patient demographics to try and come to rational decision-making around diagnostics, uh, prognostics, and um, use of medications. So that's really the kind of the big goal of all of this. Fascinating. Going to make us redundant, my friend. Going to make us redundant in some ways and maybe uh, more useful in others. Well, I saw some coverage around this at a, at a, a conference I was at a few, a few months ago. And, you know, I think the future is really about intelligent decision making with an intersection between this kind of algorithm driven health analytics and physician decision making. I mean, I, I think everyone realizes that the standalone algorithm can't work on its own. But the question is, can you use that plus your own training to make a better decision overall? We do this already. We do this with ECGs. So ECG analytics and reporting of abnormal findings is actually very advanced now. And most physicians who have to look at ECGs who are not cardiologists, they look at the ECG themselves, but they also look at the computer report. They put those things together and then they make a decision. Absolutely. Uh, it'll be fascinating. And I think our, obviously our training has to change in some ways to, to value the other things that we need to do better. Things like communicating and... and uh, exactly. You know. The things that computers can't do. Exactly. Right. Or interpreting probabilities for patients. I mean, I right. think yeah. you know, the, the way that these algorithms work is they work on probabilities yeah. and it takes a physician to help then translate that into something that a patient can understand and use. Perfect. Okay. Well... My good stuff now is going to have to be significantly shorter and perhaps pale in comparison to this, but I'm going to wade into your area of expertise, which is in malnutrition in the developing world, and talk about three studies that were recently published in Science and Cell. Yes, I read those journals. (laughs) Um, So I'm lying. I actually just read an article about those three articles. So here's here's the money-grabbing headline, which is, Basically, there have been several articles that uh, have demonstrated the importance of gut microflora in infant malnutrition um, and, uh, and growth in the developing world. So the first paper um, took mice models, and these mice have no gut microbes of their own. Half of those mice got immature gut microbes from children who were malnourished. So they basically got the, what the gut microbiome looks like of malnourished children. And the other half got the gut microbiome of healthy children. All mice were fed the same, and those with the healthy microbiomes gained more muscle and had denser bones than those without the healthy microbiome. So that's super interesting. Very interesting. So then another lab sort of had a relatively similar finding. They, they took the same mice that had no microbiomes one mice they kept without any gut microbes, and in the other mice, they gave it gut microbes. Again, they found that there was a big difference in growth rates. The one with no gut microbes didn't grow as well. What they found really interestingly was they looked at then hormone expression within those mice, and they found that the mice that had less gut microbes or no gut microbes had lower levels of growth factors, so insulin-like growth factor one. And so there's this theory, whereas the other mice had normal growth factors. So there's this theory that the gut microbiome affects hormone expression in the body, which is like super fascinating, right? Mm. Then what they found was that when they treated the mice with lactobacillus, the ones that didn't have gut microbes, they started expressing IGF-1 and their growth caught up to the other uh, other mice. So uh, just sort of this amazing idea about a microbiome hormone relationship. That's wow. super fascinating. And then the third paper 
This is um, your short good stuff? This is my short good stuff, okay. all right? The third paper was about um, how does the gut, how do the gut microbes establish themselves in the first place? And so what they found was that um, uh, these authors looked at uh, breastfeeding women in Malawi. And they found that healthy mothers typically produce certain types of sugar molecules in their uh, breast milk called sialylated human milk oligosaccharides. And that babies don't make these nutrients themselves uh, and don't use these nutrients, actually. Like humans don't use these nutrients, but microbes use these nutrients. Um, and so they found that mothers of children who have severe malnutrition make less of those types of oligosaccharides. And then when they added those oligosaccharides to the diets of mice with uh, the malnourished type of microbiome, the mice started growing better. That is amazing. Isn't it incredible? Yeah, that is amazing. Just like that whole body of work. And hmm. this all comes out of sort of several labs that have really been working Were these all published this. together in one? It, well, so two of them were published in one uh, wow. uh, issue of uh, science. And, and then the cell publication was at the same time. Impressive. Doesn't it? It always humbles us when we think about the, uh, basic, the basic science. science. I, was just, I was just thinking that. I was like, ugh, I'm so ashamed of my data dredging. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for a great conversation as always, Fahad. And I'll let you uh, go back to uh, uh, doing some data dredging. Well, that's what you're going to do now anyway. What's, it's what pay the bills. <laughs> With a p-value of 0.05, if you test it <laughs> enough times, it'll, it'll be significant once. That's right. Okay. Thanks, man. Talk to you again. Okay. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Roundstable podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>